We meet tonight, the day after a weekend where we honored the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And if we are truly listening, we should feel the weight of a legacy unfulfilled. This should be a time where we wrestle with the difference between the promise of King's dream and the painful reality of the current day. Simultaneously celebrating the steps that have, been, that have closed the gap between the two, while also seeing clearly the expanse of work left to be done. We meet tonight at a political moment, too, where we cannot help but feel the political demands of Dr. King, the King who not only called for the end of white supremacy, but also critiqued an economic system where the rich got richer and the poor remained poor. The Dr. King who called for nothing short of radical societal transformation. Indeed, to be Christian is to call to be transformed. We follow a teacher, a Messiah, who demands transformation within our hearts, our communities, our cities, our countries, our world. And this Messiah who brings people back from the dead, who turns over the tables of the money changers, who dies on a cross calling for the kingdom of God here on earth where the first go last and the last come first, he too called for a fundamental reimagining of our society. Last week here at Richmond Hill, I listened to Reverends Janie and Joel speak of the beloved community as imagined by King and inspired by the teachings of Jesus. Our goal, Dr. King wrote, is to create a beloved community, and this will require qualitative change in our souls and quantitative change in our lives. I sat in the pews and thought of the extraordinary transformation on a societal level that this vision calls for us. It's pretty overwhelming. And then I get to this text, this gospel text, and I found myself struggling with the ordinariness of the story. With this first miracle, this first sign of Jesus the Messiah in the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in a very ordinary wedding, facing a very ordinary problem. Some of us have probably faced it before. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. What do we do with this? No one needs to be brought back to life. No dramatic healing is required. There's no demon who needs to be cast out. No tables are turned over. No one is nailed to the cross. There is simply a community that has run out of wine, a party that needs to go on, and guests that need to be served. The reader is perhaps caught by the frivolousness of this need. Perhaps the need seems frivolous to Jesus, too. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, he says, and we can almost hear him add, and who are you to ask me to care for these wedding guests and their need for more wine? Yet sometimes the most ordinary of settings and the most ordinary of problems, thirsty wedding guests, for instance, to demand us to be transformed. Perhaps even simple hospitality the act of service to one's guests requires transformation. At the start of my second year at Divinity School, I worked as an, ordina- as an orientation leader for new students. I am someone who loves all things hospitality. All I want to do ever is welcome people to anything. And so I couldn't wait for this new class of students to welcome them to my school. Part of my job was to co-facilitate a conversation about identity and privilege, opening up conversations about race and class and gender and sexuality and identity, and thinking about the various ways in which our backgrounds shape how we move through the world and how, in turn, the world treats us. These kinds of conversations we know are particularly important at institutions with histories dominated by elite white people. The idea is that these institutions must continue to transform themselves into places not only hospitable to, but with shared ownership of people outside of the historic structures of power. These orientation conversations are kind of the bare minimum to do that work. As a white person who had, at the time, been working on issues of race in particular on campus that year, and who'd been meeting weekly all summer with a racially mixed group of students to wrestle with the deep work of anti-racism, I felt tentatively confident in my ability to lead this discussion. The day came and the discussion happened exactly as I had carefully planned it each of us naming our identities and how they intersect with the power structures of white supremacy, of heteropatriarchy and capitalism. We used all the appropriate jargon, hit all the talking points, and I left almost buoyed by how successful I felt it had been. I remember walking home from school and feeling proud of myself for modeling what it could mean to be a good white person doing this work. Of course, you all know this is not going to end well. (laughs) The next day, at a group debrief, I heard from another facilitator that an anonymous person who happened to be a queer person of color had left my group almost in tears. He was so distraught and had come to her to process the meeting afterwards. He felt that the way I, in particular, had facilitated our conversation had been oriented towards white people, towards the experience of white people, instead of being truly welcoming to all identities. Our conversation, which I had thought was so welcoming and successful, and which I thought had gone exactly as planned, and probably had gone exactly as planned, it had made this person 
feel more like an outsider than they had when they arrived. He felt even more like an outsider at this predominantly white institution. I was heartbroken. As I said, hospitality is a core part of who I am, and the idea that I had made someone feel unwelcome hit me like a gut punch to the stomach. As a Christian, I'm called to welcome the stranger, and I had failed. Mostly, I hated that I had hurt someone. I also couldn't believe how blindsided I was, that I had experienced the same thing so fundamentally differently so blinded by my biased perspective. And yet, looking back at that conversation through the lens of this anonymous critique, I could then see clearly that this person was right. I had wanted so badly to bring other white people into the work of understanding white privilege that I catered it to my own experience. In the process, I erased his experience. And then the intensity of my reaction, how floored and heartbroken I was, that's exactly why white people historically have been so bad at talking about race. We can't handle that we have good intentions and still hurt people. I recognize the irony that as I tell this story, I risk doing the same thing again. We are here in a mixed race group, and the point is not to talk about white privilege. But I tell this story because our gospel text this tonight calls us to be better hosts to one another. And to be better hosts to one another, to welcome each other, we've got to sit with the ways in which we fall short. You know who knows this? Jesus' mother. <laughs> We see it in her persistence that Jesus rise to the occasion and offer hospitality in the way that only he can, to transform water to wine to better serve the guests at the wedding. Even at his reluctance, she insists they have no wine. Hers is the call for transformation. And Jesus a Messiah whose ministry later indeed recognizes the big societal problems we face, answers his first call by tending to the ordinary needs of thirsty guests. His first miracle is not a big one, but it matters. Transformation, it's hard work. Yes, on a societal level, but also in our ordinary, everyday lives. It means sitting with the uncomfortable truths about ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to look at, to recognize that the world needs us to be different than we are currently being, to deal with our reluctance in bringing about the changes we know we're capable of. For me, that anonymous piece of feedback was part of a call to transformation that I hope continues for the rest of my life, never to be finished. How are you called to be transformed? As Paul reminds us of our many spiritual gifts in our epistle reading tonight, so, do, so too do we have many ways that we need to change, 
to be transformed to meet the needs of the beloved community. We each have our own work of transformation to make possible the kingdom of God here on earth. The ways that I need to transform as a 33-year-old white woman called to, meet, to ministry, those are different probably from the ways that you all need to. Yet our sacred texts can't only be read as individuals. We are here in this room together, like those early Christians would have been listening together to the gospel or to the epistle read aloud. This story hits us collectively as well as individually. We are here in community, and that's really important. That's good news. Not only does being part of a beloved community demand us to be transformed, to be good hosts to one another, but we also can hold each other in love through our transformation. The good wine in this story speaks to the potential, the beauty, the joy, and the abundance of the beloved community, as well as its demands of us. We know a transformation is possible and that it is indeed required to build a beloved community together. But we also know we are not alone. We're here together and that the power of the Holy Spirit somehow is here with us, just as Jesus' miraculous wine was shared between thirsty wedding guests. How are you called to be transformed? Amen.